This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome RAND Director of Development, Lynn Slattery. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Um, and on behalf of everyone at RAND, we're excited you could join us for this very topical conversation. So tonight, we're taking on an issue that's rapidly heating up, literally. The Arctic, <laughs> the Arctic is warming at twice the rate as the rest of the planet. Melting sea ice is opening the region's resources to new trade routes and commercial activities. And the U.S. is about to relinquish its two-year term as chairman of the Arctic Council. What are the opportunities and challenges? And what are the tipping points that could upset the stability of the region? We're very fortunate to have with us here tonight to moderate the conversation, Warren Olney, host and executive producer of the nationally syndicated Public Radio International Program. Much deserved. The uh, nationally syndicated Public Radio International Program to the Point and local public affairs show on KCRW only in L.A., with him on stage are Abby Tingstad, a physical scientist at RAND and co-author of the new RAND report, Maintaining Arctic Cooperation with Russia, Planning for Regional Change in the Far North. Thank you. <laughs> also joining us uh, from Washington, D.C. is retired Ambassador Bill Courtney, a senior fellow at RAND and executive director of the RAND Business Leaders Forum, which meets twice a year in Moscow and New York. So thank you again, you guys, and I'll turn it over to you, Warren. Well, thank you so much. Applause for Bill. <laughs> Uh, it's great for somebody who's on the radio to actually be able to see the audience. Uh, when you're doing radio, you wonder if there's anybody out there. <laughs> then if you make a mistake or something, say something stupid, you know there are people out there, and, uh, <laughs> and you hear from them. So, uh, so Abby's report is uh, titled Maintaining Arctic Cooperation with Russia, and the subtitle, often the subtitle is more interesting than the title, is Planning for Regional Change. Uh, in the far north, and uh, what it's about uh, is uh, what tensions and issues arise uh, as a result of the change. Uh, some very dramatic evidence, uh, which Abby will talk to us about, uh, of all of the change that is going on. So, Abby, let me begin with you and ask you first just to describe the Arctic and its importance uh, to the rest of the world in terms of climate and energy and uh, all of the other uh, issues that you talk about in your report. Well, thanks for that question, Warren, and thanks everyone here for, for being here. It's a delight to be with you this evening. And uh, so the Arctic is the far northern part of the of the world. It's the, uh, we think a lot about the polar ice cap, and you can see a map here that shows a polar perspective of, of the world. You can see the uh, the white ice cap that's up there, and you can also see the yellow line around it, which represents the polar ice cap that we're more used to seeing um, and that has declined rapidly over um, seasonally over the past few years. So this is bringing about a lot of important issues. There are eight Arctic countries, uh, Russia, Norway, Sweden, Finland, uh, Denmark through Greenland, Iceland, Canada, and of course the United States through our territory in Alaska. And we have been seeing a lot more news on the Arctic as the climate has warmed and the ice cap keeps receding in summertime. And this has raised a lot of issues, environmental issues, issues about energy. The Arctic is uh, 
thought to be a host to vast reserves of hydrocarbon resources, but also minerals, uh, fisheries, and a series of other important natural resources. There is also uh, some very important diplomatic issues to consider in the region. This is an area uh, that has been very stable over time. And what my uh, colleagues and I wanted to look into with this project that uh, resulted in the report was, has the region been so stable in part because of that ice cap that has kind of maintained it as a relatively uh, peaceful, calm, stable area of the world where, frankly, nobody has much to fight over? Um, is that going to change in the future as climate warms? And so some of the important changes in the Arctic have to do with diplomatic relationships between countries, their ability to, to, uh, to agree on things like search and rescue, which was an important Arctic agreement that came through recently. Um, but then we also noticed some um, military buildup, for example, that has caused concern. Russia in particular has invested heavily in recent years um, in the Arctic and has started to reopen some Cold War era bases. And if we look at the maps uh, on this next slide that um, has been pr produced as part of this research, you can see different time slices of the Arctic region moving forward. And you can see how the maritime access to the region is changing. The area in white is uh, the part of the region, maritime part of the region, that frankly won't be very accessible even towards the middle of this current century. But the areas in dark blue are going to be much more open during the summertime. And there's various gradations of blue that, that show regions that will be open to polar uh, icebreakers, for example. And what you'll notice is that there's a lot of blue along Russia's coastline. And so an important issue that came up as a result of our work was, is, is Russia behaving as a country that wants to become more aggressive in the region, or is it frankly just doing a responsible thing and trying to protect this territory that has previously been reliably uh, covered in sea ice? So these are some of the, some of the uh, challenging questions we looked at in the research. We'll hear more about the report as we go along, but uh, Mr. Ambassador, uh, Bill uh, Courtney, uh, the senator from Alaska, Republican Senator Sullivan, says we've never had a policy toward the Arctic. Is that a base canard, or uh, can you say after your many years in the State Department uh, uh, that we do have one? Uh, we do have a policy. Uh, we have a policy that is uh, predicated on the notion that countries that are members of the Arctic Council, the countries that Abby listed, are really interested in peaceful cooperation throughout the region. Uh, and that has been the case thus far. Uh, and that's true for a variety of reasons. Um, Abby spoke of the Russian military buildup, which is significant. Uh, on the other hand, Russia lacks the technology and, and uh, process capability to exploit some of the undersea resources uh, in the Arctic. So for example, ExxonMobil has a huge project in the Kara Sea, which uh, was put on hold after uh, Ukraine, after Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. It was put on hold as a result of U.S. sanctions. Uh, even though the Shell project in Alaska went belly up, partly because of dry holes, uh, ExxonMobil is still fairly optimistic about the, the project in the Kara Sea. Well, if that's the case, you know, ExxonMobil is not going to be there drilling for oil and, and gas if there is going to be military tension in the region. So on the one hand, while the Russians are building up militarily, which is, is a concern, on the other hand, they really need to have a peaceful situation to attract foreign private investment. So Abby, how does the American military presence there 
compare to this Russian buildup that we're hearing? Well, the U.S. has a relatively smaller presence in the uh, Ar Arctic region. And uh, part of this is, frankly, because the, um, you know, the U.S. has many concerns around the, uh, around the world. And um, you've only got so many resources to distribute. But, uh, of course, the U.S. Coast Guard uh, has some seasonal bases in the region. They certainly have an important presence just south of the uh, Arctic Circle. Um, and, uh, for example, in uh, the uh, cities in Alaska that are, that are not actually within the Arctic Territory. Um, the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Air Force also have an important presence just south of the Arctic Circle in the state of Alaska. So although there is some capability in the region, certainly, and there are, we do, the U.S. does have um, some uh, icebreakers. The, the number of icebreakers, for example, the U.S. has is much smaller than the number that, uh, that Russia has. Um, with all of these questions, of course, it is important not just to necessarily count numbers, but count, uh, consider the things that you want to do in the region and, and, um, I think the U.S. is at an important point where it is starting to consider um, where, what its role should be in the Arctic and uh, what capabilities it would like to, to see the region have. Well, you said that uh, the Russians don't have the kind of resources they need to really exploit the resources there, but they did plant a, plant a flag uh, at the bottom of the Arctic <coughs> Sea at yes. one point. Uh, what do you take from that? Is that just symbolic? Is that just for domestic uh, consumption? Or is that a suggestion that, uh, you know, you better stay out of our Arctic area? Well, all of the above, uh, <laughs> partly for domestic consumption. As you know, uh, particularly since uh, demonstrations against Putin in 2011-2012, uh, Putin has relied more on nationalistic and indeed revanchist uh, policies and rhetoric. And so part of that is to emphasize uh, some achievements like this. So the Russians are giving greater attention to that, but the real significance of that is, is not so great. What Russia is really interested in is a ridge that is underneath, that bisects most of the Arctic Ocean called the Lomonosov Ridge. Russia has put in claims, uh, they, they've submitted uh, scientific evidence to a United Nations body, put in claims for that, but uh, Denmark and Canada also, I believe, have put in claims. Uh, the UN body hasn't really adjudicated those claims yet. If the Lomonosov Ridge, which the Russians argue has rock samples similar to the, their own onshore rock, uh, if that is awarded to Russia, uh, the potential exclusive economic zone uh, benefit of that could be quite considerable. Uh, so looking ahead, what we have to you know, bear in mind is well, is Russia building up military force in order to uh, lay claim to the Lomonosov Ridge if the United Nations or other countries are unwilling to, to let Russia uh, have that? Uh, so that's one of the, the bigger kind of geopolitical uncertainties for the future. Uh, Abby, the title of Genevieve report is Maintaining Arctic Cooperation. Is that a conclusion or is that the question? That is an excellent question, I have to say. Well, what, uh, what we found in, in the report is that um, it does serve in the, currently in the U.S.'s interest, as it does in Russia's, to maintain cooperation in the region. And this is for three primary reasons. First of all, even though we've heard a lot about how the Arctic is warming, and it certainly is significant on the, on the, the longer time scale, it's still a really, really difficult region to operate in. Uh, it is really 
only going to be marginally more accessible in the summertime. And so the, the prospect of having all sorts of ships and people, uh, more people going up there is, 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 is a vision that, that may not come <laughs> to bear in, in the next couple of decades, certainly. So that's the first reason. Uh, reason. Uh, difficult to operate in, important to cooperate, because everybody, everybody needs help in that area. Uh, the second uh, reason is is that um, Russia has some real economic, long-term economic visions for the Arctic. I like to think of it as uh, the Arctic is is um, is is Russia's uh, one of Russia's treasure troves that it may not be able to unlock right now, but it is thinking very long-term. Russia's thinking decades ahead, perhaps even centuries ahead, where it wants to you know reap the benefits of the Arctic region. And frankly, although we do have examples in the world where you can extract energy and you know have be in a conflict region, it is so in incredibly difficult to conduct conflict in the Arctic for the reasons I, I mentioned earlier. Um, that we don't really see there could be much of an economic benefit to Russia to destabilize the region, at least at this time. Uh, the third region reason it's so important for both the U.S. and Russia and all the Arctic countries to cooperate in the region is that should there be a catastrophe, like an oil spill, for example, that will literally spread throughout the Arctic region uh, very quickly. Uh, it's a very multinational issue. It requires a multinational response, and all the Arctic countries so far seem to have recognized that. So you talk in your report about uh, how difficult it is just to conduct search and rescue uh, and how much cooperation is required just for that. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, how much, for example, if there is a, a, a ship lost, if, presuming that ships start to go there, uh, what would it take to, uh, to try to help out? Would you need all of the aid, uh, agents, uh, uh, nations that are surrounding it? Would you only use one, the ones closest to the incident itself, or how much of mobilization would be required? Sure. So uh, you are right that uh, search and rescue is a really difficult issue in the Arctic, and the eight Arctic nations took a big step towards addressing the issue by uh, signing an agreement in which they pretty much carved out the Arctic region to say this is for what search and rescue region is for each country in the Arctic. So we do have a lead country now for each uh, section of the Arctic. But one of the problems is, is that um, depending on the scale of the search and rescue catastrophe, it may be that no one Arctic country has all the resources that are required to, to save, for example, a cruise ship that is sinking in the region or uh, an, an aircraft that has, has landed in the region and requires um, help. Some other related work that we've done here at RAND actually looked at that question for the United States and um, assessed that although the U.S. is making some good strides towards search and rescue in the region, um, if you had a larger catastrophe, you'd have problems getting to the people in time, have problems um, keeping your rescuers safe, have problems if you were able to even bring people to shore. There's no, not much infrastructure on shore to support, say, two or 300 people that are suddenly coming to an Arctic community. So this could require a single country relying on, <coughs> on Arctic partners and neighbors, which I should, you know, just a reminder that Arcti uh, Russia is uh, um, the United States' uh, Arctic neighbor, um, and we share the Bering Strait with Russia and the management of that. So any search and rescue incident that would occur in the Bering Strait or any other issue is certainly one in which the U.S. and Russia uh, would need to cooperate. I said earlier it's great to be able to see the audience, and uh, I've looked at the guest list, and I know how distinguished uh, you all are, and we'll go to questions from you, and I'll give you an opportunity to ask uh, questions, and you'll probably come up with better ones than mine, but we'll do that in about 10 minutes. But I'm going to ask Bill what I think of as an audience question, and it's this. Uh, you said that uh, Exxon 
had to put its product, product uh, or its project rather, on hold because of the sanctions mm -hmm. against uh, Russia that the Obama administration uh, administered. Rex Tillerson, of course, is the former CEO of uh, Exxon. Uh, do you have any uh, insight into uh, what's going on uh, in the State Department uh, at the White House in this uh, context, particularly uh, given all that we've heard uh, in recent days and weeks and hours about um, the Trump administration and its relationship with Russia? <laughs> uh, hoping that would come later. <laughs> I couldn't resist. So... <clears throat> You may remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, President Trump and President Putin had their first phone call. It was on Saturday, January 28. There had been numerous leaks out of the White House that Trump was on the verge of signing an executive order that would lift sanctions on Russia, or at least ease sanctions on Russia, in return for a Russian promise to help in counterterrorism going after ISIS, for example. Uh, Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Uh, as it turned out, he, he didn't do that. Now, days before that phone call, there had been bipartisan warnings in the Congress. Uh, Senator Ben Cardin, the top-ranking Democrat on Senate Foreign Relations, uh, Senator John McCain, Chairman, Senate Armed Services Committee, and, and some others had cautioned against lifting the sanctions. And by the way, those are sanctions on which the Europeans and the United States you know, are together on. We, we have some unity. The day before the phone call, Theresa May was in Washington, and you may have seen on television the joint press conference, where she warned Trump not to do it. Well, the next day, he didn't do it. And so since then, uh, the Russians have been a little crestfallen that Trump did not offer a unilateral concession. Uh, within 24 hours of that phone call, after Trump did not do it, the Russians stepped up the fighting in the simmering war in eastern Ukraine, uh, within 24 hours. So that was not, did not seem to be a coincidental time. <clears throat> Before the phone call in January, in the middle of January, five prominent Republican senators and five prominent Democratic senators offered a bill called the Countering Russia, Counteracting Russian Hostilities Act, which would codify the existing executive branch uh, Obama sanctions and add new sanctions. After the phone call, because that looked like a close call, three prominent Republican senators and three prominent Democratic senators offered another bipartisan bill which would limit the right of the president to lift sanctions that were executive branch sanctions. So as we have, and we've seen some of this uh, since then, including today, um, what we see is, uh, if you will, checks and balances. The Congress has been much more skeptical of going too easily on, uh, on Putin when the Russians have not stopped the war in eastern Ukraine, not pulled out of Crimea, and carried out some bombing uh, activities in Syria, including bombing hospitals and other civilian targets that were repulsive to much of the rest of the world. Uh, so right now the situation seems to be stabilized in some sense. Uh, the president and, and the Congress are kind of pretty much in the same place, at least rhetorically. Uh, the White House has talked about a Russian violation of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. Remember the first one that Reagan and Gorbachev signed, the Trust But Verify Treaty? Um, 
that was unusual. We didn't expect that. And then the White House said that Russia had to return Crimea to Ukraine. Uh, Sean Spicer said that. Well, that came as kind of a surprise. So what we've seen in the last four weeks, six weeks actually, is kind of a stabilization of U.S.-Russian relations that looked like they were going off in a, in a different direction uh, at the time of the inauguration and, and shortly thereafter. So, Abby, uh, your findings are that uh, sustainability or that, 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 that uh, cooperation is likely to be sustainable uh, in the Arctic, but what if it weren't? And uh, what if the Russians decided that they wanted to make some move there that was uh, hostile to the United States or damaging to U.S. interests? Uh, could they, for example, if uh, Exxon does get a chance to start developing the oil there, could they make it difficult for that to happen? Could they uh, interrupt uh, shipping of oil or something of that sort? I know they have, you said they have more icebreakers. They have so many more icebreakers that we use some of theirs. Isn't that right? Well, let me clarify. The Exxon Project is a joint venture with Rosneft, the Russian state oh, it is. oil company. Yes. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So then that's not the, uh, something that would be likely to be uh, disrupt disruptive. Uh, indeed, and, and again, because Russia is, uh, has so many economic expectations wrapped up in the region, uh, that is a bit of a stabilizing force, uh, so to speak. Now, one thing that, a couple of things that we would be concerned about as a result of our research, and we did seek out how could tensions arise, arise in the region, and probably the number one thing that we were concerned about was an unintended escalation of tensions or conflict. Uh, more people operating in the region, Maybe some, you know, two, two Navy vessels uh, become, uh, meet each other or something of this nature. Uh, that's, of course, a very simple example. But could there be a miscommunication that would tip off a series of events? That's uh, something con of concern to us. So we actually recommended to, um, that the U.S. government consider ways of both increasing the information gathering and our awareness of the region and what's happening in the region, who's operating, uh, what their intentions are, and also to participate as much as possible in more events that would include Russia uh, when it comes to Arctic um, activities to make sure that we continue the, the conversations. Some other things that we were concerned about in terms of raising tensions um, were issues like uh, the involvement of uh, NATO in the Arctic. And NATO's had a, have a, had a bit of an interesting um, foray into, into the Arctic. Uh, of course, uh, different NATO members have different opinions of how involved NATO should be in the region. But uh, Norway, for example, is very concerned about Russia's activity in the Arctic and has pushed to have NATO be more involved. Canada and Denmark, on the other hand, have been a little more skeptical of that. But we do know that how Russia feels about NATO. And, for example, should Sweden and Finland make the choice to uh, join NATO, we, we would anticipate that Russia could start to feel a bit more encircled in the region than it does uh, currently. So there are some issues that could cause tensions. We're not anticipating that any of those would necessarily be economic in nature, um, but there are other things that could be of concern. And of course, if something were to happen where Russia uh, would re perhaps come to, to think that even long term there might not be as much economic gain as they were hoping for, we could see a, a potential uh, decline uh, in, in cooperation um, as a result. And declining cooperation uh, would mean what in terms of not just helping out uh, in all of the ways that everybody needs to help everybody in the Arctic, or uh, are there possibilities for real aggressive behavior? And if so, what would it look like? Again, that's a, that's a good question and one that's uh, 
uh, we have to consider what the operating conditions in the Arctic are like. Um, you know, the, the thought of having a, a full-fledged, um, uh, you know, uh, conflict like we, we see in the Middle East, for example, is, is really hard to, to fathom for the Arctic simply because, again, of the, there, there would be a, a short season for operations and then, you know, you might, you could conceive maybe something under the ice and perhaps some, some Air Force activity, but uh, in terms of naval vessels or ground troops, uh, you know, cyber is also a, a, a domain that, that uh, is not necessarily seasonal, so to speak. Um, but it, it is hard to conceive of, of what that may, may look like. That said, uh, we've noted all the benefits of cooperation in the region. Russia's a huge partner um, in, in that cooperation, so with a lot of capabilities. So if they decided not to cooperate, you know, um, and say the U.S. or another country would require icebreaker support from Russia to deliver you know, uh, heating oil or something like that to an Arctic community, just as an example, or help with a search and rescue incident, that could potentially be a loss. Um, I'll also um, turn that mm -hmm. over to Bill for any further comment. Well, just on the icebreaker point, um, <clears throat> Russia, while we've had some tensions with Russia, when it comes to commercial arrangements, we're able to do a lot of things. So the United States regularly rents icebreakers from Russia for Antarctica work as well as up in the Arctic. Russia has 40, some, 40 or so icebreakers, of which six are nuclear-powered icebreakers, so they're sustainable for a long period of time. We have two, and one is broken. <laughs> That's a pretty good answer to that last question, I think. <laughs> uh, so we have reached the moment, I think, when it's time for people in the audience to ask a question. If I heard you right in the opening, there's something called the Arctic Council, and I'm sort of interested in what does it do? Does it do anything? Are all these decisions that we're talking about managed on bilateral relations and not through the council? Um, well, thank you for that question. It's an important one. Mm. So the Arctic Council is the uh, diplomatic body um, that uh, all the Arctic nations participate in. They are the decision makers within that body, but there are also some other nations such as uh, um, China, for example, that has an observer position. The European Union is also an observer on that council, as are some indigenous uh, peoples organizations. And um, they do actually manage the process of uh, uh, making agreements uh, for multi multilateral agreements for the Arctic. For example, the search and rescue treaty that I, I had, I had uh, referred to earlier was a, result, a direct result of that council's efforts, and it was done within the, within the council itself. Um, it also provides a, a good forum for Arctic nations to, to dis discuss different issues of importance. So it does have an important function. It is, a, it is something that um, Arctic nations and, and stakeholder, other stakeholders in the Arctic do look to to help make decisions um, in the interest of all, balancing the interests of all stakeholders. The one thing the Arctic Council does not address is security issues, and they are very uh, firm on that point. Um, and uh, my understanding is this is because um, they feel that that could in inhibit the ability to serve as a, as a broader diplomatic body. But one thing that we recommended in our report is um, that uh, there be a, uh, an investigation of how we might create a forum where it is safe to talk about Arctic security uh, issues. There, there did used to there, there is a Arctic Security Forces roundtable that is um, managed. Uh, uh, through U United States European Command and, and others, um, but that is a forum that is purely for um, security issues. It is something that Russia was uh, uninvited to, so to speak, following the um, the, uh, the Crimea and uh, Eastern Ukraine conflict, 
And so one of the problems with, with that, and I, I'm sure that Bill could elaborate further, is that then it becomes a bit of an issue of, well, you weren't invited, and so then it then that raises tensions. Um, so perhaps seeking an, an alternative um, uh, forum might be might be of use in maintaining cooperation. Mm -hmm. Could I just ask a follow-up? Uh, you can see by the map that different countries have different exposure in, in longer or shorter uh, coastlines that uh, are part of the Arctic. Uh, is the membership in the council, uh, does it have anything to do with how much uh, of the, uh, how much of your land mass is actually uh, attached to the Arctic Ocean or is everybody equal? Uh, everyone is equal, although certain uh, agreements uh, made within the Arctic Council or perhaps separately from that um, that have specifically to do with the very center of the Arctic Ocean. Um, and in those cases, sometimes only um, the Arctic states that, that have uh, our so-called Arctic coastal states would participate in those discussions. Okay. A few years ago, there was uh, global warming. Then it was changed to climate change because there was no warming, I guess. And uh, now there is the discussion, what is happening? There is ice melting, not melting. What is happening with the, the current situation that we're led to believe that uh, is right or wrong, and we have to listen to politicians, I suppose, which is not necessarily the best uh, situation. Do you do you want to talk about the impact of global warming? Uh, I, I would. I would be happy to. So, the um, uh, certainly the the messaging, if we can call it that, on on um, climate change or global warming or climate warming, whatever it is the, the flavor of the the day uh, to call it is. Um, it, it can be confusing. So I, I appreciate your 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 comments, sir. Um, what we what we find is that that when we look across trends, you know, several years to decades, that certainly we can see clearly that the climate of the, the Earth is warming. It is certainly having a big impact on the sea ice in the Arctic and other, I should also mention, changes on land in the Arctic. For example, the winter roads that people rely on for resupply of communities and other things um, and uh, uh, moving of resources, um, they, they are also becoming much more unstable. Of course, on a year-to-year -year basis, you may see an uptick or a downtick just because that's the way that climate works. It never, almost never goes uh, unilaterally in, in just one direction, but it's rather fluctuating along a certain trend line. And I think that's what um, sometimes makes the conversation difficult because people might say, well, look at California. What drought? We're having you know, a, a lot of rainfall. The drought must be over. But if we look at the longer you know, statistics for California or for the Arctic or wherever we want to look at, you do notice that the trend line is moving in, in one direction and you may have fluctuations around that trend that sometimes make it on a year-to-year -year basis or a daily basis when political uh, discussions happen or where policy decisions sometimes have to get made. It, it, uh, it makes it difficult to always incorporate the longer view into those. On that same question, that was uh, thank you for asking it and answering it too. Um, what's the impact if if the climactic change continues uh, and increases? Is that going to have any effect on the relationships that are going on there or not? So that's uh, that was one of the core reasons why we did this research. And if you um, don't mind, maybe I'll click back to that that chart um, that shows. Uh, 
area-wise, how we expect the maritime um, access to, to increase based on the warming that we expect over the next few decades. And so what this, this raises is a, is a few different types of questions. Mostly, there are existing tension points that just could, under certain circumstances of climate and other issues, become more tense. One of those that's very dear to Russia, of course, is the Northern Sea Route, which is the sea lane that goes along Russia's northern coastline. Um, Russia has long claimed you know, uh, uh, jurisdiction over the area and control over the area for economic and strategic purposes. Suddenly, now that it's becoming more accessible um, now and certainly in the future, uh, at least in the warm season, uh, when the ice is, is, has been melting, uh, this suddenly becomes more of an issue because it no longer is a theoretical problem. It could be an actual problem. And that is one reason that we've postulated that maybe that's why Russia is in part uh, rebuilding some of its Cold War infrastructure in the Arctic because it intends to control that region um, for economic gain or for strategic purposes, as I, as I mentioned. Uh, Bill was speaking, actually, about the uh, continental shelf claims of Russia and Denmark and Canada. And um, that issue is also something that has been raised as becoming more important as, um, as the sea, sea ice declines seasonally and these uh, areas become more accessible. We could start to fathom the concept of resource extraction, although, frankly, as you see on these maps, the, the, very, um, uh, the most polar, polar region is, is still relatively in, inaccessible. But even so, we can start to fathom the concept of resource extraction. And then again, it becomes less symbolic and starts to gain some economic and strategic and other types of importance. So that is just a few of the ways in which climate could impact. How far away do we appear to be from a Northwest Passage? Uh, so this is one of the interesting things about uh, the patterns of sea ice melt in the Arctic. And um, there, it is true that this past summer a cruise ship did transit the, the Northwest Passage, so it is possible today. In terms of having longer-term access during the summertime season, it is actually uh, the northern sea route and even the top of the, directly over the top of the Arctic that maybe um, have more opening for longer periods of time over a greater area, so more consistently open than the Northwest Passage. And this is because many climate scientists and sea ice, uh, through their sea ice and climate modeling, are predicting that there's going to be long-lasting ice in those Canadian Arctic uh, archipelago and, and parts of Greenland to prevent as um, steady access as perhaps Canada would like to imagine there would be. Here, um, I'll, I'll turn to the left-hand side first. The uh, Northwest Passage that Warren was referring to is right here along um, Canada, and you can see it makes use of these, uh, this Canadian archipelago, which um, is difficult to transit on a clear, ice clear day, but as you can imagine, very, um, very difficult, especially with sea ice. Here along the Eurasian coastline, you have the northern sea route. And then there is also predicted to be a route that would go right over the pole here, which would have some interesting implications for, um, certainly through the Bering Strait, but also the, uh, uh, for Iceland as well, for example, to, to have um, some ports um, in that region. And 
if you look at these maps, you can see that what we're track, trying to track is this dark blue water and this, and this uh, medium azure blue water, if you will, because those will be accessible to what we call open water vessels that don't have any form of ice strengthened capability. Um, and also very light icebreakers, which are a little easier to purchase because they don't require quite the, ma the machinery, so to speak, of something that would go through very, very thick ice like you might see in the deep of winter or, or perhaps even Antarctica. I'd like to ask you a follow-up question. I was at, all three of us right here, were at an event for the World Affairs Council maybe no more than two months ago, maybe a little bit less. Dr. Alachi who was the former director of the Jet Propulsion Lab, spoke. And this is a follow-up to what you were talking about. He said that within 50 years, I'm saying 5-0 years, there would be enough melting that our coastal cities would be affected by it. He didn't go into the extent of it. Well, my ears just went off like a buzzer. I could not believe what he said. Rather than be irresponsible, I contacted the president of the World Affairs Council by email, and I said, before I repeat this around and speak to people about it, I want to check with you that I heard it properly. And he emailed back to me, yes, that's what I heard too. Now, it is possible that Dr. Olachi maybe made a, a mistake and didn't correct it or didn't realize he was making a mistake. But we're talking about this area so far to the north and then so far to the south. But if that happens within 50 years, we are effect affecting almost all of the major, major cities of the world. The United States, East Coast, West Coast, the Gulf area. And then we get to China and what's there in the islands. It is monumental, huge. And what I don't understand, if that was accurate, why are we not trying to have meetings that come from our government telling us we have to think about moving our cities inland? We can't keep building, you know, there. So this is what I'd like you to address. Is that reasonable? Did he make a mistake? And if so, what are the implications for our government and the whole world? Thank well, thank you for raising that, that very consequential point. Um, there's a... There's a uh, saying that spins around Arctic circles that what happens in the Arctic doesn't necessarily stay in the Arctic, and that is a prime <laughs> <laughs> example, uh, all joking aside, of, ex of exactly what that means. Um, I am, of course, familiar with the, with the work that uh, JPL does, and, and what a wonderful opportunity to hear from Dr. Uh, Alachi. Um, I, I have not read the study uh, that was referenced, so I can't comment on that in particular, but I will say that the issue of sea level rise because of um, ice melt in the polar region, specifically that that occurs on land, um, is a huge problem because if we look, for example, at the Greenland ice sheet, there are so many scientists that are studying the Greenland ice sheet, not for their own edification <laughs> interest, but because if that ice sheet melts, and especially if it melts catastrophically, meaning that it begins to melt faster and faster and faster and faster. That has tremendous implications for sea level rise in our coastal cities all around the world, as you mentioned, uh, and um, islands, for example. They are really going to experience some very dramatic change, uh, catastrophic change. Uh, 
and to follow up with your your, more, your policy question about why why are we not moving our cities inland, this is an active area of planning for many of our coastal cities. Uh, for example, Rand does a lot of work with the city of New Orleans um, to address its its many issues and challenges that it faces. And um, one of the one of the um, the important concerns for these cities is how to how to plan for these kinds of catastrophic events. Um, Unfortunately, uh, even if something makes sense with respect to the physical geography, um, you know, why do we, why do any of us live on rivers? Um, they flood occasionally, you know, and uh, uh, why do we live in an earthquake zone? Um, it is sometimes difficult to think again long term when we're really making decisions on a day to day basis about how to feed our families or or uh, you know what our what our next job opportunity is going to be. Um, but I will. I hope this is a, a, a word of um, of hope for the future. That many more cities and uh, areas in general are paying a lot more attention to the longer term impacts of climate change, and they're doing their best to try to incorporate some of that thinking into their into their planning and, and come up with contingency plans and things like this. Most of us are aware of historical instances of the use of um, super large uh, submarine craft for. Uh, freight, in a sense, um, and in the Second World War particularly, numerous examples. Uh, and I was wondering is, when I look at this, whether or not uh, there's serious study underway uh, contemplating the use of uh, s s freight submarines in this area. Uh, that's a, a really interesting question. I, um, To be honest with you, I, I have not come across anything of that nature, but it is something that I, I would love to look into further because um, you know s submarines under the sea ice, there there are clearly challenges to operating, but uh, um, they they can uh, they have the uh, facility to to overcome some of the challenges that surface craft um, would experience. Um, do you have anything to add? No. no. Okay. Hi, I was wondering if there was uh, any studies that you've done, particularly on the implications for wildlife, and um, if there are any talks to create protected areas in, in any of the Arctic, if there are any implications beyond just economic and strategic. Sure. Um, wildlife is, of course, one of the uh, perhaps iconic aspects of the Arctic, um, and uh, some of the... Uh, Cold War cooperation, actually, between the United States and Russia was, in fact, on uh, issues on uh, polar bears, for example, protecting polar bears. So there has been a long history of uh, um, a cooperation on these types of environmental issues. The more you operate, though, and the more the climate is changing and threatening um, certain uh, species' habitats, the, the harder it gets to... Um, uh, to know that we can protect the, the fragile environment in the region, fragile and, and iconic, I should say. But um, there have been several measures that have been taken um, to protect different areas of, of the Arctic, limit fishing, for example, um, in certain areas, um, also uh, placing limits on on where we can where we can search for hydrocarbons and, and where we can't, and also a lot of planning that's taking place that should um, an incident happen, or thinking back to the uh, Exxon Valdez, for example, happen again. How do, how do we how do we address that? What are the latest technologies for us to um, to mitigate that? And I've also been heartened to um, to be aware in, in recent uh, months um, that even as companies plan to invest in the Arctic for economic purposes, um, they are 
they appear to be working with, for example, the World Wildlife Fund to better understand their implications on the environment in order to uh, to respect that. And we still need to see, of course, what the outcome of all that will be. But I am heartened at least to see that um, some of the concerns that the World Wildlife Fund and others have raised are actually being uh, at least uh, taken into account in some of the initial stages of planning by companies that are interested in making investments in the region. Um, yes, very detailed and persuasive um, findings. And But given that we have an administration where uh, our president has said that global warming is very expensive bullshit, and uh, a science advisor who, or a potential science advisor, who says that those who believe in climate change are members of a glassy-eyed cult, how is your research going to be uh, received, and how do you how do you bridge that? Well, thank you for that that question. Uh, <laughs> I was, if you hadn't said your research, I was going to turn that over to Bill, <laughs> which, um, in fact, I, I would like to, to, um, to uh, have your opinion on this also. But I'll, in brief, I will at least say, just with respect to this, this particular research, uh, one of the things that we've tried to do is uh, we, we understand that there is a, a lot of uh, opinions about uh, the, the research on climate change. And so... We try to take, take that and understand that that is there, and we try to do research that um, uh, bridges some of the, the gaps in, in thinking and the gaps in understanding and, and to address issues from a, uh, from a perspective where we take economic factors into account, climatic factors, of course, into account, political factors, military factors into account. And by taking a, a multidisciplinary approach, we try to find um, a, a policy-relevant level at which many, many people can agree. Many people have, a, have observed that the Arctic is opening. We know that, that the, for example, the cruise ship was able to go through the Northwest Passage this summer. Regardless of how much we believe that there is going to be a global warming, however many degrees or not as the case may be, we have... we. We do agree on certain changes that are happening in the Arctic. Why they're happening is something that, that people like to debate. Some don't. Um, but it's important then to create policy um, research that then is able to, to, to say, well, what are the, given, given that this has happened, what are, the, what are the implications and how can we really manage uncertainty, frankly, about the future in the region? Um, Bill, do you have anything to add to that? Um, <laughs> yes. In our system of government, we have difficulties sometimes in trading off short and long-term concerns. Uh, the most dramatic example recently are the calls for entitlement reform. We've had situations in the past several decades ago in which we were concerned that the Social Security Trust Fund would run dry. And finally, there had to be a commission to look at that and recommend changes. Uh, this is uh, somewhat like that kind of an issue where you know, long-term climate change versus immediate jobs, uh, if you will, cost of doing business. Uh, we're probably going to have to have more debate informed by the kind of research that Abby and, and her colleagues are doing because that, that research and these kinds of maps are really going to make a, a difference, but it's a cumulative 
uh, effort. Typically, in our system of government, we have to have some crises in order to spur action. So we may need to have some crises. Maybe some part of some city in the United States is going to experience a significant issue or something before we do what we really need to do. Uh, but long-term versus short-term has been an issue for both Democratic administrations and Republican administrations on different issues. I was hoping to get a news program out of that answer. I'm not sure that uh, it's time yet. Isn't it true that the military is very concerned about this, particularly at Norfolk uh, and other places along the coast where they have military bases? The uh, Norfolk Naval, Norfolk Naval uh, Station, as I understand it, is already experiencing uh, periodic tidal uh, exposure, whatever you call it, uh, on, a, on a large and scary scale. The Navy is more concerned than the Army is. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I thought there were some generally accepted rules around the world of what part of how, what part of the ocean is controlled based off you know how far it is off your coast and stuff like that. So if all the ice melted in the Arctic, wouldn't those same rules apply? And basically, wouldn't we have somewhat of agreement on which part Russia gets to like mine and which part we get to mine and which part? Uh, Canada gets to mine. Are there different rules that people are trying to apply here than in the rest of the world? Well, there are under the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Sea, uh, there are specified uh, continental shelf exclusive economic zones 200 miles out. And then one of the issues in uh, the Arctic is extended uh, zones, if you will, these underwater mountain ridges. So take, for example, the islands that China is developing now in the South uh, China Sea, East China Sea, uh, building those up. If that was an underground mountain before, but suddenly uh, they bulk it up and it's above ground, then they would, under the law of the sea, get an exclusive economic zone 200 miles uh, around that. So these are very important issues, and as the sea ice melts and the sea rises, it is going to change the parameters of the exclusive economic zones of countries. And I would add also that the um, uh, another important issue is the right of innocent passage, which is an issue that comes up uh, uh, around the world. So, so you're correct on that. And that is indeed something that um, is uh, being uh, debated uh, with the Arctic countries as well, because both uh, Canada and Russia would like to perhaps claim um, more jurisdiction over the waters off of their coastlines than, than uh, the United States or some other countries would, would uh, think, think was consistent with international law. So that is something that is um, being uh, debated and being reviewed and, um, and maybe it may be an issue as, as the ice melts. It, again, it becomes more important. What about the uh, indigenous people uh, in the uh, Arctic and, and how are they accommodated? Are some countries doing a better job of that than others? There is uh, definitely a very um, uh, inconsistent, say, let's say, approach uh, to um, indigenous uh, people's rights and opportunities across the Arctic. Uh, fortunately, through the Arctic Council and, and uh, indigenous people's organizations that span the different Arctic countries, these issues are coming more to light. Um, what's interesting about indigenous people and, and when we think about climate change and, and other changes in the Arctic is that there are really some ways in which we might consider that they, um, there would be additional opportunities and there are also some ways in which, for example, um, 
there, there might be uh, issues that are put at, put at risk. Uh, I'll just give some examples. For example, in Canada, in indigenous uh, peoples have been bargaining uh, for uh, more control over the resources that are in their areas and so that they could gain some more economic benefit. On the other hand, when we think about the winter roads, as I mentioned earlier, um, creating a logistical challenge for indigenous peoples, you can see how there are some, some ways in which there's some wins, and so, so to speak, and some, which is, some ways in which there are losses. Coastal erosion is another very important issue that is becoming important um, as the sea ice melts um, in summertime, and that is, a, that is another issue. But um, indigenous rights are a very... Um, as I mentioned, very uneven, and uh, in, in Russia in particular, there have been some concerns raised about how the, um, how the people are treated and what, what rights that they are given, what opportunities. And so this is an issue that I expect um, we will be seeing more about in the years to come. Back to the audience. Uh, calling this a tipping point uh, implies uh, an instability and a lack of equilibrium. And there used to be a lot of talk about how as the sea ice melts, or the ice at the poles melts, there's decreased reflectance of the sun and more absorption on land. And so that there could be a, a, a kind of a positive feedback effect that co could cause an acceleration in the rate of heating. And I don't, I don't hear much about that anymore. Uh, I mean, is that still a consideration or not? Yes, sir. Yes. Um, that's uh, the uh, part of the, the reason that um, we anticipate uh, – that we have seen and we anticipate seeing more um, amplified climatic change and uh, in the Arctic is, is exactly for the reasons um, that you stated. And um, in essence, as the, as the Arctic warms, its ability to help cool the Earth uh, decreases, and so that amplifies the, the effect, frankly, um, worldwide. So thank you for that comment. You've named the eight countries that have an interest in the Arctic Circle and one corporation, Exxon. Can you name more corporate stakeholders or interested parties? Uh, sure. Um, frankly, there are many different oil and, and gas companies that are interested in the Arctic. There's a lot of mineral mining in the Arctic as it is, and so there's uh, any companies that are uh, affiliated with that are also um, interested. There's, uh, as, as shipping routes become more uh, 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 visualized in the Arctic. Um, certainly a lot of shipping companies out of, for example, South Korea and Singapore are interested in using that route. Um, there is a lot of concern for the insurance to those uh, ships. So insurance companies, perhaps for a not so positive reason, are also <laughs> interested uh, in the region. Um, so those are, those are just a few examples. It is, it is largely economic one way or the other, um, but um, um, I anticipate uh, either economic or logistic, but I, I do anticipate that in, in the future um, we might see the development of um, even more land-based land um, companies uh, in the region. But again, because it's not that developed in some ways and there's not a lot of infrastructure, and frankly the regulations that govern operations in the region um, in some cases have either been unclear or have fluctuated in to the to more more liberal or more cons conservative approach, um, many companies have found a, some difficulty considering uh, investing or, in fact, indeed how they would um, invest in the region. Do you uh, have with, anything? Yeah, with regard to Russia, uh, close to twenty percent of Russia's gross domestic product uh, GDP uh, is tied one way or another to the Arctic. 
Uh, for example, up in the Murmansk or Kongolsk area, where during World War II we delivered lend-lease supplies to Russia. To, you know, we went so far north to avoid U-boats. Uh, um, up there, there's a shipyard, Severodvinsk, which is the largest producer of merchant ships, shipbuilding, uh, in Russia. Uh, Norilsk Nickel and Palladium Company up, up in the far north is the world's largest producer of, of nickel and palladium. Uh, there are diamond mines, many others. So there's a lot of economic activity in Russia in the high north, much less so in, relatively speaking, for the United States and Canada. Uh, throughout the world, there are lots of areas that are totally arid. What's the chance to offset the uh, rise in the ocean with redistribution of water, maybe with desalinization? I think in an I ideal environment, we would be able to, to, to do that. Um, I think there are a lot of barriers, both you know, technological and logistical, as well as perhaps uh, diplomatic in some ways that would that would that could make that very difficult. Um, that said, I, I've heard this idea many times, and um, I think it's something that, um, as we continue to feel pressure environmentally um, and uh, with our populations growing and things like that, I think that we will continue to have to look to to solutions like that. As I predicted, you guys had some wonderful questions, and I want to thank you for that, but particularly for the answers. Thanks to Bill and This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.